the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking with Kate Williams from Frontier SI about digital twins and some of the exciting projects that she's been involved in and the benefits that these digital twins are providing. But before I talk to Kate, I need to talk to you about our exclusive podcast sponsor, NBS. So NBS Chorus allows you to specify your project in Uniclass 2015, which is recommended by the Queensland Government BIM Data and Information Guidelines, as well as the Victorian Digital Asset Strategy Guidelines and mandated by Transport for New South Wales. So to learn more about NBS, head to their website, www.nbs.com.au. So Kate, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Now, Kate... Some people in Melbourne would be aware of your work if they'd attended a Melbourne event, but for the listeners that are across the globe can that wouldn't be aware of, I guess, your role and what you've done in your career, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm one of those really lucky people that chanced upon a university degree. Um, I didn't know anything about it, but I've had a 20-year career that I've really loved, um, all working in the same area in spatial science. So I went straight from my degree in geomatic engineering to a job as a spatial analyst at an engineering consulting company, um, doing a lot of work in creation of data, so uh, roads, data sets, all of the types of things that you see on a map, um, and then moved on to, you know, creating analysis for decision-making and a lot of work in the infrastructure sector, particularly helping um, on the uh, environmental approval process, um, but also uh, using satellite data to create new information about the world to help people understand environmental impacts um, and other things like that. So I moved on from 19 years in, in engineering consulting to a job in the Victorian government. Um, I worked on one of their biggest digitization uh, projects of the cadaster, which is the property boundaries. Um, so that's to create a more accurate data set that's um, easier to maintain and easier to improve uh, the the positional accuracy over time. So as part of that project, um, I worked on a demonstrator project, uh, the Victorian government's first digital twin project down at Fisherman's Bend. Um, It's obviously a great use case for uh, digital data sets and accurate digital data sets. And um, that was a great experience and my first real branded digital twin project. Um, Since then, I've moved on to a not-for-profit, Frontier SI, as the chief business officer. So involved in um, developing the business, finding new opportunities for us, but also still heavily involved involved in digital twin projects and initiatives. It's just a small CV. <laughs> and and that's the thing that I really love about the, the guests that, that, you know, the, like yourself, taking your time and bringing your, you know, two decades of experience to the listener base that we have. Um, we'll talk about some of the projects that you've covered later on in our discussion, but can you explain to the listeners the services that Frontier SI provide so that, you know, if they want to reach out to you, what, what, what are the things, how could you help them? 
Yeah, Frontier SI, it's a pretty unique business. Um, it was born out of a CRC. So one of the um, CRCs is actually turned into um, a viable ongoing business. We were the CRC for spatial information, hence the SI. Um, we're a not-for-profit now. We are we're still a partnership organisation, so we're working with uh, government, university and the private sector. We're purpose-driven, so we're here to um, make sure that Australia and New Zealand get the best social, economic and environmental outcomes from the use, use of spatial information, so earth observation data, positioning, you know, your GPS um, and other analytics that creates new data and new insights. So what do we do? Um, we help people across a range of different sectors make use of that technology. Um, it could be agriculture. Um, we've been working with people uh, in finance and insurance, um, in the banks as well, um, looking at how that spatial information can create new insights so you can make better decisions. Wow. <laughs> the technical partner, I'd call you. Yeah, look, sometimes, um, and I think we'll find it in lots of industries, uh, there's a lot of really amazing work that goes on at the government sector, but also in universities, but it's not often translated into operation and people don't always see it get through to, you know, driving the real benefits that it can. Um, so we're really there to help um, broker those multi-party agreements that bring the best from the university and the private sector to solve government problems or industry problems. Um, so we think of ourselves as brokers, um, but also the people that help translate all that good work. Um, just as an example, one of the programs we've done a lot of work on is Digital Earth Australia, which is um, an amazing Australia-wide project creating um, a data cube of Landsat, so satellite information, plus all the tools to create new insights from that. So we've been working with the Geoscience Australia team on DEA to understand how different industries can use that data, how they can tailor the products and services so that it's easy for industries to consume. I love the big words that you use. There's so <laughs> much going so much so much going on. It's like I'm trying to think how I could depackage this. It's but in in essence big data and and being able to and 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 you call yourself a broker but I kind of look at it as maybe possibly being the bridge. You're the bridge yeah. and assisting people gaining insights and, and and knowledge that university has created and all this technology and then being able to bring it to market essentially because that's where I guess universities struggle in most times. It's it's very good research but commercialising it. Yeah, and it's it's a difficult thing to do. And look, Nathan, I've only been at Frontier SI for a year. I've watched on um, kind of, uh, you know, in awe for a couple of years and, and now I get a chance to get involved. It's, it's not easy, um, but it's really important. Um, there's a lot of, as you say, I, I might use a lot of jargon and big words. I apologise. <laughs> I try not to, so I really apologise if I have. Um, but... You know, we want to see people getting value from this. And I think, you know, in the theme of your podcast, Digital Transition, this is really what's what it's about. It's making sure that people can keep up with and make use of technology so we don't have this kind of two-speed um, world where some people, you know, they can really 
get the value from it and then other people can't. And I think in Australia there's some great examples. We've got some states that have got heaps of money and they're investing heavily in digital and there are others that aren't. Um, so Australia-wide um, initiatives that allow us all to get on board and all use the power of digital um, is really important to me. No. Now, the reason for – the primary reason, I guess, for bringing you on to the podcast today was to talk to you about digital twins. Now, the reason for having a third podcast specifically about digital twins is because my frustrations um, in industry today – it's surrounded by miscommunication by people that are trying to use the digital twin branding or naming as marketing jargon to make them sound like they're doing more than what they really are. And I have arguments and fights with lots of people about this, but as someone that has been involved in industry, delivering digital print, <laughs> delivering digital twin projects, what is a digital twin in your opinion? So great question, Nathan. And I will start by saying, I think the concept is still sorting itself out and uh, looking over the fence at BIM, you know, how many years later, we're still having that same conversation about what's BIM. So firstly, I am not going to give you a definitive answer because oh, no. it will change over time, but I'll give you what I think today. How about that as a, a bit of a um, caveat? We'll look back in a decade's time. <laughs> yeah. So for me, a digital twin is um, a digital representation of something that exists in the real world or has existed in the past or might exist in the future. Um, but not only um, is it that digital representation, it actually allows you to simulate the way um, that piece of infrastructure or that system um, operates in the real world. So having a 3D model of something it's not a digital twin. It's an important part of a digital twin, but you need to be able to ask it a question. So what? What if I, you know, put a roadblock here? What happens to traffic? Or what if I take down um, this wall? What happens to the structure? Um, so it, you have to be able to scenario build and ask what if. Um, and for me in space, one of the things that digital twins must have is they must exist in real world coordinates so that they can be integrated with other digital twins. So a model of a building, um, it might be amazingly detailed. Um, you might be able to do a range of things. What if I shut this door? What can I do with the HVAC system? You know, but if it's sitting at zero, zero, it doesn't have for me one of the fundamental elements of a twin, which is it can't be put in context. It can't relate to other things around it. Um, and it can't really sit within um, the real world. What about temperature outside, angles of the sun? If you plant a tree, if your neighbour builds a building, if it doesn't have a coordinate and you can't put it into a street or a precinct or a city or a state, um, you've missed a really vital element. I like the majority of your comment. <laughs> Or your statement. Which I, bit do you disagree with? Uh, well, the thing the thing I struggle with is the is the concept, and this is probably going to digress and take us on a whole different journey. But and and I and the thing is, I think there's good value in debate in, in this podcast as well because it then kind of gives a couple of different perspectives. But 
the one thing I struggle with is the one that isn't built because yeah. that, from my perspective, that's still just the world of building information modelling. And the way I see a digital twin from my view and from the kind of Gemini principles that it was all founded mm. upon was yeah. about the real life connecting to a digital. And when it's not built yet, there's no physical connection to it. So that's okay. We're all entitled to it and you're in that world. So the listeners can believe you and just ignore me because <laughs> you're the expert. <laughs> Look, I think, it, I mean, it's a great point and, and that um, ability for connection between the real world and the digital is an important factor. However, we kind of, you know, in the city scale, the, the most important questions are the what if questions. Um, and I think being able to go forward in time, having multiple scenarios about the future is really important. One of the data sets that we are um, have been working on in the past and, and we're seeing lots of different um, initiatives at the moment is sea level rise as an example. Um, having sea level rise, being able to envision it in a city in 3D, in a digital twin, is actually a really powerful thing. It en enables people to make different decisions and hopefully uh, might those decisions might be about the way we design a city um, as well as the things we do uh, to limit ch climate change. So I really strongly advocate for future and it could be multiple futures. We don't actually have to know about the future, but we have to be able to plan for it. All right. I'll 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 still sit on the fence on that one though. <laughs> I know, well, I still I th I still think it's I I I wouldn't call it a digital twin. I'd more call it analysis, BIM mm. analysis in terms of an environmental and stuff. But that's mm. all good. We won't stick on that and keep going round and round in circles because it'll be a circular debate. But <laughs> trying to tie this back to things that people can relate to, and because it's very hard for for most asset owners that that may be listening to kind of go, well, what's this all mean for me in my world and how does this make sense? And one of the things I want to relate it back to is a question that was put forward on another social kind of platform called Clubhouse uh, and it was a discussion about digital twins. Now, I just want to ask you, you know, people interact with Google Maps on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and the question was, is Google Maps a form of a digital twin? And what's your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I'll start with a, a little anecdote. So when I first started my career in GIS, people would say, what's that? I would explain it. I'm in Melbourne and they'd say like the Melways, you know, which is like the Sydney UBD or something. And I'd say, well, kind of like the Melways, but it's inside of your computer. And then along came Google Maps and people started saying, like Google Maps. And that was a great moment for my industry because, yes, what we do is more like Google Maps than a piece of paper, so good. Um, but is Google Maps a digital twin? Um, you know, as I said before, I don't like to get too hung up on definitions because they will change. Um, but for me, Google Maps is not quite a digital twin. I think it could be an important ingredient for a digital twin. It's got amazing data. Um, it's definitely got a temporal element. And maybe, Nathan, it does change a little bit as the world changes. You've got traffic, um, amazing traffic and, and um, routing in there. So it does help you make decisions. But for me, the thing about Google Maps that I find um, 
doesn't really go with with what I think of as a digital twin is the ecosystem around it. I think of um, digital twins as being a very collaborative, um, multidisciplinary, engaging platform and program. For me, Google Maps is very specific. Um, It's very kind of... it allows you to do one thing maybe or, you know, find an address and, and find a route to that address and, and maybe options and traffic. But it's not a particularly um, collaborative environment. It doesn't allow lots of different people to bring data and share it and aggregate it um, in and I think that's part of um, an essential piece of a digital twin. And maybe where we're seeing, um, you know, that that BIM to digital twin handover. Ooh, I like that one. But I, I still disagree. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how I go one way with the other. But it, Google Maps saved me the other day. I, was, I had to drive back from the Sunshine Coast and... You know, an accident on the Bruce Highway. There's no joke there. That always seems to be the case. But, yeah. you know, it told me a new route. It said, you want to yeah. go a different way. So for me, it was real time telling me what to do. Yes, it has a sole purpose. But when it comes yeah. to digital twins, an asset owner may have a digital twin for a single purpose as well. So that's kind of where I kind of get at it. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's good to have debate and arguments. So. Yeah. Well, we're going to add, we're gonna add no, to the confusion. <laughs> we're going to add to I the confusion. No, I said maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and look, one just on Google products, you know, Google Earth Engine, I'd say absolutely is a digital twin. So the, it, Google's definitely in the business of digital twins. Well, they're in the business of data mining and, yep. and knowing everything we do to determine what's the best advertising to put in front of us. So that's analytics going in the background to make make put things in front of us that might want us to buy things, which is scary. And it's only going to get worse, fifth element style. Now, we we have the understanding, most people understand the concept now of buildings and infrastructure and, and you know, seeing all of these visualisations with models. That sounds all, that looks all good. They can go, okay, I can understand how a digital twin may work with that concept. How does the spatial industry contribute to digital twins? Now, you did touch on it briefly in your introduction regarding you know sea levels and and talking about plantings and that but how does the spatial industry actually directly contribute to digital twins yeah look i think i said the word context um and doing a bit of homework for this podcast nathan i did (laughs) listen to your digital twin discussion with anna murray and and she definitely highlighted that context element of digital twin i think the spatial industry sees it a little more richly than context. So absolutely we allow the infrastructure to be put into the landscape and to make better decisions about its um, how that landscape can impact upon it. And I've mentioned shading as an example or traffic, um, but I think also will help understand how the piece of infrastructure can impact on that wider landscape. So whether that's... Um, the impact on people or the impact on environment. Um, Spatial is really about that bigger picture, that systems-wide picture and the ability to aggregate up. Um, And I think that's a really important role that we we play. Spatial has always been in the business of um, 
big things, uh, you know, statewide maps, national maps. Um, what we are able to do is to take the very high resolution uh, information that you might have about a particular building. Um, we're then able to take the key pieces of information that would be useful uh, to be aggregated up for that precinct scale, city scale. Um, the other key thing um, is the concept of being able to find and access data. I think that's where spatial has a really um, important role to play. We all have that kind of mental picture of, uh, you know, a thousand files sitting in someone's um, server but how do you find the one that you want? Um, address is good, but being able to draw a box over an area and say, what have we got here? You know, that way of finding data spatial is really um, an amazing way to collect and, you know, curate data um, for really easy access. And, and lots of the big CAD um, software vendors are enabling you to do um, that kind of clip and search, you know, rather than going through convoluted um, file structures. Let's pan to the area that we want. Let's see what the information that we have about a particular area. The biggest problem actually is with most software and and the challenges I think that most people in industry essentially flat earthers and it's a conversation I've had with with numerous people on the podcast, even Greta from BAC last week because she comes from a GIS background as well. You know, there's no software that they can actually cope with uh, real-world coordinates so well in, in the flat world and, you know, we won't even touch on the fact that the Earth, that Australia actually moves on its tectonic plate and how's a digital twin going to uh, essentially... does With the digital twins or is there software around that understands the movement of the tectonic plate and then moves the digital twin with it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, Nathan, and it is an important one here in Australia and particularly um, for our cousins over in New Zealand, it's an even more important question. Um, it's kind of a long and boring answer, but absolutely. Um, and Australia and New Zealand and other countries, of course, are working on making sure that we have um, dynamic datums or, or an actual understanding of position and time, not pretending that position is static. And look, the Digital Cadastre Modernisation Project that, that I was speaking about really um, is is the type of um, new data set that will include time that will help um, move the position of, of features over time. That <laughs> That's probably a little bit too technical for most of our listeners, but it's just something that, you know, we people don't realise that, that we're moving constantly. And, and actually not by a small amount. Um, and, and it's worth kind of keeping in mind that time – um, is always something that you should keep in your data sets. <laughs> well, that's a big that's a big important thing to to, to note that uh, because I think I saw a post on LinkedIn the other day from a surveyor, and they were talking about the or no, it was from TMR, and they were talking about the position of a intersection, and I think over the over five years or something it had moved a meter in in wow. space and time. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot. And look, I think it's important to think about, um, I have heard on a couple of your podcasts as well, you know, that that autonomous future we have with driverless vehicles, um, really important um, that those systems understand that movement 
as well. Well, that's where you guys are going to solve the problem for us, aren't you? <laughs> in, the, in, per- in the spatial industry. <laughs> My colleagues. <laughs> That's no, but you're going to form the bridge between the experts and industry. <laughs> That's what your role will be. Yeah, and to make it simple, actually, because your, you know, your software and your measurement devices should should help you do that. It should it shouldn't be so hard in the future. Now, one of the things that we talked about when we caught up to talk about what we would cover off on in this conversation, and I think, you know, you started talking about the importance of data and data management and being able to find it, you know, through, you know, being able to get it, get to it in its real life. And one of the interesting acronyms, and, and I try to re- remove acronyms from life because they, they frustrate me, but you talked about fair, you know, there's nothing that's fair in life. We all know that. <laughs> but you want to talk about something that's fair in relation to data principles. Now, obviously there's data principles, but how is that actually really important for digital twins? Now, taking that step back, you talked about, you know, everyone contributing to a digital twin. So what's FAIR? Um, So the FAIR principles came out a few years ago now. Um, Maybe 2016 um, was an update and and when I first heard about them. Um, And I mentioned before that the spatial industry and and spatial science and technology can really um, help people find data in a really natural way. You know, zooming to a map, drawing a box um, or or putting an address is a great way to find the information that you're looking for. Um, So when FAIR um, came to my attention, uh, I really thought it was a useful way to think about the way that we manage data and the way that we prepare data for others to use it as well. So um, the F is for FAIR, findable, as I said. The A is for accessible. So having data that um, is locked up in your desk drawer on a CD um, is not accessible. So creating the systems and tools that allow other people to use that data um, is a really important part of the data management role. The next is interoperable. Operable. So using open standards or standards that other people understand um, that can go from system to system. And I think you can see how important that is for digital twins. Having data that's locked up tight and can't be used or aggregated or examined with other information isn't going to help us drive the digital twins that we want for the future. Um, and the last one's reusable. So making sure that the information has metadata so that you know what um, you can and can't do with it or how the information was made or designed, Um, but also making it so that it's really clear what you've got and how. Um, And I think, you know, things like um, Uniclass and and other standards for information that can um, help people understand what they're looking at. You know, what does a blue line mean? There's somebody that's worked for a long time on the intersection between CAD and GIS, you know, having everything on the same layer and just changing the colours or, you know, it doesn't really help people reuse that data for other purposes. So I think FAIR is um, a really easy thing to remember and it's got four really high-level um, concepts that if you think about those when you're creating or sharing data, um, we're going to be able to have, um, you know, really rich digital twins into the future. It's probably not just even relevant to digital twins but in terms of creating information just for design and construction as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And and look, we've heard on your podcast and in lots of places about how information is lost through the process or recreated. Um, and I think if people were more aware of um, how what they're doing and the data that they're creating can, can support other activities down the chain um, and follow those fair principles, I think we would have a lot more efficient process. Now, I want to move on to a case study and case study is always important because it's where, where lessons are learned, where knowledge can be shared about real life outcomes rather than um, talking about theory, which with a lot of the things that happen today, a lot of it is theory because not a lot of people have done a lot of the things that we're trying to you know, communicate and share. Now, there was a project that you worked on in New Zealand and it was a vast project and and bringing the spatial um, industry's perspective to it, you know, most people at this point in time have a strong awareness of, or hopefully, or might have an awareness of digital twins when it kind of ties back to the building management systems mm. or, you know, in, in building and forming an asset owner that there's something wrong or the, the like. Can you share with the listeners a little bit about what you worked on uh, on this project in New Zealand, how it kind of has that digital twin, um, you know, focus. Yeah, sure. So um, a couple of years ago, Frontier SI um, were, um, put out a call for projects that we could co-fund in the digital twin space. We were looking for projects, um, Nathan, that really did uh, have – a bit of a point of difference from the projects that we saw councils um, and state governments funding as well as infrastructure owners. Um, and we, we got back an amazing suite of ideas. Um, we co-funded three of them. And the one in New Zealand that you're referring to is called the Digital Twin for Flood Resilience. Um, it's led by the University of Canterbury and LINS, which is Land Information New Zealand, and also New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. So what that digital twin um, is trying to do, and it's underway at the moment, it's not, not complete yet, is looking at how um, you can use a digital twin to um, understand flood risk, understand opportunities to mitigate flood risk, um, and really do it at scale. So we all know that, um, you know, there's there's whole groups of people who are doing flood modelling and, and coming up with one in 100-year floods and maps and data sets and informing the planning cycle with that. It's a, it's a very established discipline um, and they do fantastic work um, using really specialised software tools. What we're trying to do with the Digital Twin for Flood Resilience in, in New Zealand um, is to facilitate that type of work in a digital twin environment that allows you to do things rapidly. Um, it allows you to um, test scenarios, but also that it allows you to do it at scale. Um, so you see a lot of these flood models, they, they're very data hungry. Um, they need to know the topography. They need to know where the buildings are, what's the floor level of the building, um, surface roughness, um, all of the types of things, you know, they're, they're hugely data hungry um, pieces of analysis. 
the University of Canterbury Lens um, and the team there are looking to do that at scale um, using Digital Twin and bringing in that variety of data sets um, but also publishing and sharing the data in Digital Twin um, so that people can really interact with that complexity of information. Um, and that's something that, that the project is also looking at doing. You mentioned lessons learned. Um, we have done a couple of roundtables with the three projects that we're co-funding. Uh, they've got very similar lessons. And, you know, the first one is still... Um, the effort that's required to bring together all of the rich data that you need to do this type of analysis. Data is still in silos. Um, there's still a way to go in making data that's fair and making sure that all the data we have um, is accessible. But also there's a, a clear lack of standards. And just to use an example, um, it's really important to know where a building is because a building, um, you know, it stops water going straight. It, it channels water around it. Um, but it's also important to know where the doors and the windows are um, because that impacts upon the risk. So what are the data sets that we have and maybe that, that um, the, the BIM world has and how do we make sure that we understand those key pieces of information um, so that we can transfer them between the systems? So, so we've learnt a lot and, and we'll have some recommendations about standards and um, ontologies there. Um, and we've also kind of really learned something we already knew, which is digital twins and, and the creation of digital twins is a multidisciplinary exercise. The value of a digital twin is in the domain that it's being used for. Um, so you need to have um, the right people involved at the right time. Um, and that's also at the governance level. So the steering committees um, on projects like that and on systems that will operate over time, they can't just have the technical people. They can't just be spatial scientists and, and digital engineers. Uh, they have to include the users um, and the people that are potentially going to benefit from the work that you're doing. It's important, obviously, that you get the stakeholders in at the right time so that the people, the technical people, aren't just making assumptions about how a person may use that information. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I suppose it's more than treating um, the domain experts as a stakeholder. I think it's allowing them to have an insight into the governance of the project and the program um, so that it's really going to add value and it's going to create the information in a way that they can consume it for their decision-making process. A big issue facing the globe at the moment is climate change and mm. a substantial focus that's part of, you know, the Institute of Arctics here in Australia that I'm part of is about climate change and sustainability. And every time that that point of discussion gets made about, well, you know, as Arctics we need to do better um, <laughs> and, you know, help inform the community about how we can be more sustainable, I say, well, there's a solution for that. There's solutions out there that technology can assist in that. Now, what are the specific use cases that, you know, we talked about flooding and, and right now, you know, flooding is something that happens a lot more often because the storm activity seems to be more intense and 
less frequent than we get droughts and rain, droughts and rain. But what other um, specific use cases could can you suggest that digital twin can be used for either assessing environmental issues at a at a macro or a micro le- level? You know, city level, you know, suburb level, um, you know, neighbouring level. What what sort of things could people use it for? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's something that we've really put our mind to um, at Frontier SI. Uh, that kind of resilient communities and the way that digital and digital tools can help with resilient decision making. You know, so it's it's not just about being sustainable; it's about being able to adapt to the changes that you know we see coming and that unfortunately we can't now prevent. Um, we are working on a, another digital twin project um, that looks at livability. I think livability um, really is related to this issue. So it's urban um, heat island effect. Uh, it's the issues of um, how people actually interact with the built form and how that might change under extreme weather, whether that's rainfall, you know, flooding, um, or, or heat. And I think there's some great examples that look at that both at, you know, an individual street level and, and it might help councils with things like, you know, simple things like planting trees or providing more water for those trees to grow and, and be healthier. Um, Adaption such as things like green walls and green roofs, where should you do it? Where will you get most bang for your buck? Um, but also at the broader scale. So we're going to see as well um, more intense bushfires and the long-term effect of smoke um, on the community is is actually is quite a serious impact and, and we see, you know, people having res- respiratory problems on days where there's burning off or bushfires. Um, digital twins can help um, both predict that um, communicate that. I think that's really important. Communicate in a way that people will understand because you can see um, what we're talking about, but also will help understand the long-term impacts of that. So the other, the third project that we're co-funding is looking at um, the impact of those environmental factors on the population and how they might change over time. Um, I also mentioned earlier things like sea level rise, um, looking at mitigation um, or adaptation to those types of changes that we're seeing over the long term, um, I think is a, another really important case study. Now coming up in the, in the, next, in the next month, you're actually participating in a, it's a Smart Cities Digital Twin uh, event where people could learn more about the, the work that you've been doing recently. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, we're going to be running an event at the Smart Cities Council's Digital Twin Week on the Tuesday. It's coming up in mid-October where we'll have the researchers from each of the three projects we're co-funding talking a little bit more about their projects. Um, And if you're listening to this podcast after October 2021, um, we'll put a link down the bottom so that you can replay that session. Uh, But we're going to go through those projects and hopefully there'll be a good contrast or or point of thought um, in a week that is going to have a lot of examples from the built form and from cities. Um, We're hoping that our session will um, open people's mind up to the broader landscape digital twins um, that we want to see in the future. 
I, we didn't even talk about smart cities at all. We haven't even covered off on that today. But is that is that the big the digital twin at the spatial level that you're talking about, Catherine? That's that's the size. That's that's kind of the the beginnings of a smart city as well, isn't it? Yeah, and look, I think what we're seeing, um, Victoria has got Digital Twin Victoria funded. They're really looking to drive a statewide digital twin. So it's a great um, thing for people to watch. What does that really mean? What's the type of information and the types of analyses that are going to be driven by a statewide digital twin? We're seeing the same thing coming out of New South Wales with their spatial digital twin. Um, But interestingly, we're also seeing federal government um, signals that digital twins are interesting. Um, The New Zealand government um, has just put out a draft infrastructure strategy and it points to um, the need for or the analysis of the need for a digital twin for all of New Zealand. Um, And we also see Infrastructure Australia's recent strategy pointing to these types of digital tools uh, for decision-making nationwide. So it's a really interesting time to see how we might scale up um, our vision of digital twins. Um, Maybe people are thinking about um, buildings or cities, um, how we might scale up that thinking to statewide or nationwide. Yeah, and the Queensland government just released their draft infrastructure plan too. Uh, it it does talk about digitisation, but it doesn't go yeah. into substantial detail at this stage as to what that will be, which is which is fair enough when it's a, a policy, and then we see mm. responding responding documents to that afterwards. But you did touch on uh, the work, you know, originally or well not originally, so. Before your current role, you were working for the um, Victorian government and and the Fisherman Ben project, and you just explained that the Victorian government, through their policies, now are investigating a digital twin process. Now, it's kind of almost like a circle for you because you, you said you were working on um, statewide, you know, cadastral stuff for the government, and now they're starting to look at using digital twins for. Um, the process and assessing planning applications. Mm. Now, I know this isn't a project that you're specifically working on anymore because it's, you've moved on and you're in a new role. But from from it from the outside, how could a digital twin like this, in terms of the, the using it for the the process of assisting in planning applications? Um, how do you see that this could work and how it could make it the planning application process easier? Because really, at the end of the day, what what governments are trying to do is to try and remove red tape, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I think if you have a look at what they're doing in the Victorian government, they've got a pilot project called eComply, which is part of their digital twin initiative um, and how you might use digital twin and digital tools to semi-automate that process of approval. Um, I think that in Australia we have quite an inefficient um, planning system. We've got very uh, localised rules, you know. It's hard to know if you're a national developer, you you know, you need people in each state to tell you what you can build and where and it's quite a contestable um, process. I think digital will help 
with certainty on both sides. It will help the developer understand whether what they're suggesting um, is going to be approved. So, you know, it won't waste time um, in that back and forth. But it also helps the government, uh, local government, for example, to be really clear um, about what you can and can't do and help to signal to the market in a really easy way um, the types of development that, are going to be acceptable. Um, and the more you cut down the time it takes in the um, planning and approvals um, stage, the more you can get cracking on, um, you know, spending the money, driving the economy by building things. So it's a win-win, I think. Um, and we've seen e-comply in Victoria, um, but we are seeing signals right across um, the country that this is a really great case study because as first cab off the rank, it's actually really easy to quantify the, you know, the dollar value of saving a day yeah. of time in that process. So it's a great case study because, it, you know, your big four can, can really quickly quantify that benefit. Well, I can see every because sometimes things are locked into planning applications for months and months on end and yeah if you can plug a model into a into a into a tool and it tells you that it's compliant on that site because all the parameters are locked in to say what what's possible on that site I can just imagine you know even taking a step back from that and actually having you know like a, a development checker before you even mm-hmm. before you even put a, an application forward you know if I'm proposing to put this building on this site what what's wrong with it? What, where where do I comply? Where do I not, don't I comply? It'd simplify yep. the town planning process of compliant yep. development, wouldn't it? Exactly, and that's what a comply does. It, it when you see the demonstration, um, and if you have a chance to talk to Adam Molam or see some of the presentations he's been doing out of Victoria, it really clearly shows you. You know, you're set back it's visualized as a, a purple surface and, and your buildings in front of it. So it's really easy to adjust your design um, to see where it is and isn't complying. It's also worth mentioning that the planning industry is really well aware of the lack of digitization in their process. Um, recently, the Planning Institute of Australia um, put out a I think it's a document called Plan Tech, um, and it talks a bit about um, the fact that their industry needs to go on a digital transformation. So it's not just us in digital that's seeing the potential for planning. Uh, the industry itself has an appetite to change and an appetite to um, adopt digital processes. It's a no-brainer, isn't it, in terms of a starting position, in terms of trying to you know, leap forward at the front and 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 cut a whole pile of time out, and and ideally, it it hopefully make better quality submissions. Maybe I don't know, or maybe the the planning guys would actually understand what architects are trying to achieve. Or most of the time, it's possibly developers just trying to push the envelope a little bit too far. <laughs> maybe that's well, why. It's, maybe I that's actually the problem. <laughs> and look, I think that what you know the. The whole purpose of planning is to have an outcome that's beneficial for the community and the environment that, yes. you know, the the, the um, buildings or, or the infrastructure is going to be built in, um, but also 
you know, to have that benefit of someone investing in a local area. So I think if you can have upfront clarity, um, you can visualize that in a twin and you can scenario build in the digital form, you'll actually have a better outcome for both parties. And I think this mutually beneficial um, aspect is one of the reasons that we're seeing um, planning applications as, as coming up very um, high priority in government digital twin initiatives. I think that's, that's a really good point to end on, I think, in terms of an, an outcome, in terms of a vision of where the future will be. But, Kate, thanks very much for your time today. My absolute pleasure. Now, I have one question for you, the final question. Now, we've already talked about what you think digital twins mean to you, but this is the one question I ask all of my guests and I'm looking forward to understanding your views on it coming from a digital twin and spatial industries perspective. What does BIM mean to you? BIM to me is both a digital model of a piece of infrastructure, but also the process to create that model, design that model. Hopefully the BIM of a piece of infrastructure um, is something that can be used to help operate that um, asset over time, um, but is also information that can be um, used and accessed in wider systems. So I'm a digital twin um, kind of advocate. So what I see the um, BIM is, is a potential source of information for broader decision-making outside the owner of that asset. So it's also an opportunity to collaborate in the digital world like the building is part of, you know, the system in the real world. I think I might call your your definition FAIRIM. <laughs> Fair Information Management instead of Better Information Management. But um, thank you very much for your time again, Kate. Thank you very much and um, I look forward to chatting soon. Now, for more information on Kate, uh, Digital Twins and, and a link to the event that Kate will be speaking at uh, in October 2021 uh, and the future recordings that will get changed over once the events occurred, please head over to the podcast section of the SCID website to obtain that further information and links. Now, I look forward to sharing an next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. Digital transition.